0: You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org
1: students. That's lls.org students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes.
0: Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part Of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. This is the final episode of our second season, which has been devoted to stories loosely or not so loosely related to photographs in my book, Hollywood Frame by Frame. The book features contact sheets printed from still photo negatives taken on the sets of movies between 1951 and 1997. More or less the entire period in which 35mm negatives were the primary capture medium for still photographs used to promote movies. So while the bulk of the book features Golden Era stars like James Dean, Montgomery Clift, and Marilyn Monroe, the final chapter of the book contains images shot on the sets of movies like Fatal Attraction, Dazed and Confused, and a number of shots from the 1993 set of The Crow. The Crow is seemingly the antithesis of classic Hollywood. In fact, as a dark comic book source drama which became a franchise, it would seem to have more in common with 21st century Hollywood. But the story of The Crow is not just the story contained within the movie itself. There's a famous quote attributed to French director Jacques Rivette that every fiction film is a documentary of its own making. That idea hangs particularly heavy over The Crow— a movie about a young, promising rock star who's killed and then rises from the grave to wield more power in death than he had in life. It was also a movie on the set of which the promising movie star playing the lead role was killed while the cameras were rolling on his character's death scene. That actor was Brandon Lee, And his death seemed, at least initially, not just impossibly cruel, but also such a freak occurrence that it instigated rumors of a conspiracy or even a curse. Not least because it happened almost exactly 20 years after the similarly sudden and initially unexplainable death of Brandon Lee's father, the first martial artist movie star, Bruce Lee. Join us, won't you? As we explore the short lives and two early deaths of Bruce and Brandon Lee.
2: This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on Mubi is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride.
0: Bruce Lee was born Lee Jun Fan on November 27, 1940, the Year of the Dragon, in San Francisco, where his father, a famous Cantonese opera star, was performing. The family returned to Hong Kong, where Bruce was raised, and there, at the age of four, he became a child actor. He changed his name to Bruce Lee when he was a teenager and began studying kung fu with legendary Wing Chun master Yip Man. Bruce practiced his moves, fighting with a street gang. Maybe not the typical extracurricular activity for a rich private school kid in Hong Kong, although maybe the typical antics born out of child actor growing pains. At the age of 18, Bruce returned to the US and went to college in Seattle, where he studied philosophy, met his future wife, Linda, and started teaching Jeet Kune Do, a new type of martial arts which he developed to give the practitioner personal freedom within the discipline. Lee wanted to continue his acting career in America. But when he looked at American movies, he didn't see anyone who looked like him in any kind of part that he would want to play. Chinese actors were sometimes cast on the periphery as servants, opium pushers and or addicts, sometimes cartoonish warlords. But in the rare event that there was a sizable part for a Chinese character, almost always it would go to a white guy in yellow makeup. Bruce and Linda had two children, son Brandon and daughter Shannon, and Bruce started going on the road, doing one-man martial arts demonstrations to drum up business for his school. At a karate championship in 1964, Lee was discovered by William Dozier, the producer of the Adam West Batman series. Dozier cast Lee in his new TV series, The Green Hornet, as the sidekick Kato. But that series failed, and to support his family, Lee began teaching kung fu to the likes of Roman Blansky, James Coburn, and Steve McQueen. Lee then tried to create a TV program for himself to star in, called The Warrior, about a Shaolin fighter in the Old West who battles cowboys with his hands and feet instead of guns. But Warner Brothers balked at casting Lee in the lead in his own show. They claimed that the problem was Lee's thick accent, and maybe that was part of it, although his accent really wasn't that thick. It wasn't less intelligible than, say, Desi Arnaz's. The fact is, in 1971, it was unthinkable to cast an Asian man as the lead in a primetime TV series. Soon thereafter, ABC gave the green light to a series called Kung Fu, with the exact same premise as The Warrior, but starring David Carradine as the Shaolin monk. Bruce Lee soon fled Hollywood in frustration. He returned to Hong Kong, where the Green Hornet had been repackaged as the Cato Show, turning Lee, unbeknownst to him, into a local hero. Working with Golden Harvest Studios, Lee developed a martial arts movie called The Big Boss, the title of which was changed by its US distributor to Fists of Fury. Probably due to a mix up with Lee's next export, which was actually originally called Fists of Fury, but was retitled The Chinese Connection in America. In any case, both films were massive hits at the Chinese box office, setting records which were then smashed by Lee's third film, The Way of the Dragon, which Lee not only starred in, but wrote, directed, and produced as well. In the 1970s, Bruce Lee became a hero in Hong Kong and other parts of Asia, in part because he projected an image of Asian masculinity that was totally different from what the world was used to seeing on screen. He was both strong and scrappy. He was charming and cool. He was sexy. This, of course, appealed to Chinese audiences, but not just to Chinese audiences. Film critic Pauline Kael would compare Bruce Lee to Fred Astaire, which is interesting for a number of reasons, and the common grace to Astaire and Lee's movement is only the beginning. Like Astaire, Lee wasn't Hollywood or America's idea of a conventional hunk, but because of the way he used his body and his talent, he became not just a charismatic hero, but a total sex symbol. Certainly the fight scenes in a Bruce Lee movie function a lot like the musical numbers in a Fred and Ginger joint. In both cases, they're the reason for the movie to exist, and the plot and dialogue scenes that string the moments of spectacle together are easily forgettable. Both Lee and Astaire were control freaks, who maintained total control over their own choreography, taking authorship over the signature moments of their movies in a way that was completely atypical for performers. Fred Astaire insisted that his dance scenes be shot in wide angle, with minimal cutting, so that the audience would be blown away by the fact that he was really doing all of these dances himself, without stopping. Plenty of Bruce Lee's fight scenes included wide angles, but not exclusively wide angles. The cutaways and inserts didn't distract from his feats of balletic athleticism and strength. The jump cuts, sudden zooms, and whip pans emphasize the impact of Bruce's movement on his fight partners and on spectators. The audience's holy shit reaction is incorporated into the form of the film. The magic factor is foregrounded ostentatiously, even winkingly. A press release bio published in 1973, before Lee's death, boasted, In the course of one year, Bruce Lee has become the biggest box office star in Hong Kong history, the new idol and sex symbol for millions of Asian fans. Now he is out to capture the Americans too. Lee did believe that the time was right for his U.S. crossover. In interviews, he cited Nixon's 1972 visit to China as a touchpoint in Americans' growing interest in Asia. He also showed his publicity savvy by comparing what Hong Kong martial arts movies were doing for him to what spaghetti westerns had done for Clint Eastwood, and he suggested that his movies were in line with James Bond movies and their ability to mix violence with humor. Essentially, he was carving out a place for himself in the zeitgeist, as well as outlining the modern genre film sensibility. But, of course, Bruce Lee couldn't just conquer America without an invitation. And he got one because his movies were minting enough money overseas that finally Hollywood decided that its prejudices could be put on the back burner if it meant getting a piece of that action. And so producer Fred Weintraub was able to convince Warner Brothers to co-finance with Golden Harvest a new Bruce Lee movie called Enter the Dragon. Enter the Dragon was the film that would make Bruce Lee a superstar. And in the first half of 1973, Lee shot that, as well as parts of what would become his last film, called Game of Death. In Hong Kong, where he was shooting, Lee was such a huge celebrity that he was constantly hounded by the press, which was stressful. The sense that he was on the cusp of an unprecedented international fame was bubbling up around him. He had offers to star in movies with Elvis and Sophia Loren, and he put pressure on himself to live up to the hype. That pressure wasn't necessarily productive. He had a major anxiety attack at the beginning of the Enter the Dragon shoot, delaying principal photography for two weeks. He developed a facial tick that had to be shot around. He had always been a fitness nut, but during this period, he became more extreme— He refused to eat in restaurants, lived only on vegetable juice and crazy protein smoothies made from milk, beef, and eggs blended together. There were claims that he had had the sweat glands removed from his armpits out of vanity. He pushed himself so hard while shooting Enter the Dragon that his weight dropped from 140 pounds to 120 pounds. He was a guy whose body was being marketed as a killing machine, and he weighed less than me. On May 10, 1973, Bruce Lee collapsed in a dubbing studio while finishing Enter the Dragon. He was rushed, convulsing, to the hospital, where he fell into a coma. But he awoke and was soon diagnosed, depending on which report you believe, either with a type of epilepsy or with cerebral edema, a swelling of the brain. Two months later, on the night of July 20th, 1973, Bruce complained of a headache. He took a painkiller and went to sleep. He didn't wake up. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. NetSuite.com slash remember. There was such a high demand for news about Bruce Lee at this time that much of what was printed in the days after his death should probably be read with a healthy dose of skepticism. But here's what seems to be undisputed. His body was found in the bed of an actress named Betty Ting Pei, who, according to most reports, Lee was running lines with for an upcoming film when he decided to try to nap off his headache. Many reports say that Betty Ting Pei was not just Lee's colleague, but also Lee's on-again, off-again mistress. Earlier that day, Lee had met with George Lazenby, the current James Bond, to talk about a future collaboration. Lee had started feeling headachy during that meeting, and when he got to Betty's place, she gave him a painkiller called equagesic, which included a muscle relaxer. Before he died, Lee again suffered a cerebral edema, and an autopsy revealed that this was possibly a reaction to the painkiller he had taken or maybe to the muscle relaxer within the painkiller. This seemed crazy for a man who was the poster boy for physical fitness to die from a single headache pill. But there was a long investigation, and finally, Bruce Lee was ruled to have been a victim of, quote, death by misadventure. This sounds a lot more sinister than it actually is. In fact, death by misadventure is the legal term for an accident. It's only used when there's no indication that a crime has occurred. But by the time this sad, frustrating, but rather anticlimactic verdict was reached, the Bruce Lee conspiracy theory racket was in full swing. The two most lasting theories involved either a curse or a criminal plot. It was apparently known that there were feng shui problems with Lee's house in Hong Kong. And a feng shui expert had put a small mirror on the outside of the building to ward off evil spirits. But that mirror had been ripped off the building by a typhoon the day before Lee's death. This theory, I guess, doesn't take into account the fact that Lee died in somebody else's house. I don't know. To some people, the fact that he did die at Betty Ting Pei's house after she had given him a pill gives credence to the idea that Bruce Lee's death was ordered by a Chinese gang, who were miffed either by a specific slight or by the general fact that Lee was on the verge of massive celebrity through his publicizing of ancient Chinese fight secrets. There's no real evidence supporting this theory, although there are many web pages and YouTube videos devoted to unpacking it. In any case, At the time of his death, Lee's Western crossover wasn't complete. His New York Times obit was a short eight sentences, one of which consisted of snark about Lee's film Fists of Fury. Enter the Dragon was released in the U.S. just weeks after Bruce died. And with that, Bruce Lee went from an urban cult icon to a nationwide sensation. The numbers are insane. Made for only $850,000, Enter the Dragon is said to have grossed $25 million in its first U.S. release and $90 million worldwide by the end of 1973. And it continued to make money as new generations discovered Lee and flocked to see the movie thought of as his masterpiece. In 2013, Playboy reported that the current cumulative gross was estimated at $350 million. Lee's growing posthumous fame... Give fuel to the industry which popped up right away, exploiting interest in his death. A typical product of this industry is an illustrated book credited to the editors of Kung Fu Monthly that was published in 1978, which, lest you accuse it of being a quickie cash-in, boasts in its preface that, quote, It took a full month of patient digging through the archives and alleyways of Hong Kong to produce the material for this book. That's right, a full month. This is the world that Brandon Lee grew up in. He was eight years old when his father died and in death became a legend for both his unique and impressive talents and for the supposed mystery over the cause of his death. Brandon didn't want to coast on being Bruce Lee's son, but as he went into acting as a young man, his lineage and the training in martial arts that he had received first as a child, learning from his dad, opened up specific doors— Brandon's first acting job, somewhat ironically, was opposite David Carradine in a Kung Fu TV movie. He appeared in a couple of direct to video and just slightly more prestigious action movies, the most notable being Showdown in Little Tokyo, co starring Dolph Lundgren, released in 1991. By 1993, Brandon Lee's resume had little of note. And yet, all of the publicity surrounding The Crow, his fifth movie, suggested that Brandon Lee was the next big Hollywood sensation. Maybe for no particular reason other than that's what publicity does. But why not? Brandon Lee was 28, super handsome, six feet tall, much taller than his dad, and he was funny and self-deprecating. He was good on a couch on a talk show. And he had an advantage that his father didn't have. Like future superstars Vin Diesel and The Rock... Brandon Lee's ethnicity wasn't easily definable, and he also had no foreign accent which could be used against him. Brandon didn't have the revolutionary promise that Bruce had, but that meant that he had the promise of a more mainstream kind of stardom. If nothing else, The Crow would give him a chance to show off what he could do in a vehicle based on a dark graphic novel that was completely separate from all of his family associations. But after the fact, the similarities between Brandon Lee's experience shooting The Crow and Bruce Lee's experiences in the last weeks of his life would seem unignorable. Like Enter the Dragon, The Crow was a low-budget production, meaning every moment was valuable. And as on Enter the Dragon, there were unusual and unexpected roadblocks. A carpenter was badly burned on the first day of shooting by a live electrical wire. At one point, a quote-unquote disgruntled sculptor freaked out and smashed his car into the backlot plaster shop where he worked. Then, in an echo of the tsunami that hit Hong Kong the day before Bruce Lee died, there was a massive storm in March 1993, which destroyed the Crow's exterior set in North Carolina. And just as Bruce had worked himself ragged, Brandon started to suffer from many weeks of night shoots, which often required him to work shirtless outside in freezing temperatures six days a week. On the seventh day, he reportedly joked, I drink. The Crow was eight days away from being done on the night of March 30th, when Brandon Lee reported to set to shoot the scene in which his character is shot to death by a gangster waiting for him in his apartment. Director Alex Proyas, an Australian who had directed music videos for In Access and Crowded House and was making his feature film debut called Action. Brandon opened the door to the apartment set and stood holding a grocery bag containing a small, harmless explosive device called a squib, which he would activate once the actor playing the assassin fired his gun. The gun was fired, the squib in the bag went off, Brandon Lee went down. All of this was as planned. It was only after Proyas called cut and Brandon didn't get up off the floor that any of the hundred or so people on set realized that anything was wrong. In fact, Brandon was bleeding profusely from a silver dollar-sized hole in his abdomen. And after surgery and several blood transfusions, 13 hours later, Brandon Lee died at the hospital. The fact that Brandon Lee's real death happened as cameras were rolling to capture his pretend death begged a final, horrible comparison to his father. Brandon's death had icky echoes of Game of Death. When Game of Death was finished after Bruce Lee's death, the producers even inserted footage from Bruce Lee's real funeral. It all happened so fast— that it's probably safe to assume that Brandon Lee never knew what hit him. In fact, no one knew what hit him until after an autopsy and forensic investigation. As with Bruce Lee's death, in the immediate aftermath of Brandon Lee's death, the lack of information about what exactly had happened opened up a vacuum for speculation. And as with Bruce... In the case of Brandon, the answers eventually provided raised more questions. Early in the shoot, a prop guy had gone to a real pawn shop to collect props for a pawn shop scene, and one of the things he picked up was a box of live bullets. You're not supposed to have live bullets on a film set under any circumstances. When the property master saw these on the set, he knew they shouldn't be lying around, so he took them and locked them in the trunk of his personal car. Usually when a gun is fired in a movie, the gun has been loaded with a blank. A blank usually used on a film set is a bullet casing filled with gunpowder, called primer, in order to create a firing effect, but with a disc of cardboard at the end of the bullet instead of a lead tip, so that the impact, if any, is minimal. At some point during the shooting of The Crow, It was discovered that there were no blanks on set. So to save time and money, the prop guys modified the live bullets from the pawn shop to turn them into blanks. They also created some dummy rounds, meaning realistic looking bullets meant for shooting close-ups with the lead tip intact but no gunpowder inside. One of these dummies was loaded into a revolver for a shot where the camera mimicked the perspective of a victim looking down the barrel of a gun. During this shot, The lead tip, unbeknownst to anyone, became lodged inside the barrel of the gun. Two weeks later, shooting the scene in which Lee's character is shot, the same gun was loaded with a blank, without anyone having realized that the lead tip was still lodged in the barrel. So when the gun was fired, the blank propelled the lead tip out of the barrel. If a blank is one half of a traditional lethal bullet, the lead tip from the dummy was the missing half the blank needed to act like a live, lethal round. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is, nope because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, Flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash y m r t this explanation, convoluted though it is, clearly points to the shooting being accidental and not any one person's fault. In fact, there had to essentially be endemic negligence and incompetence set wide in order for this to happen. So no criminal charges were filed, although Brandon Lee's mother brought a civil suit against the production, which was settled out of court. The thing is, because so many people had failed to do something they were supposed to do in order for this to happen, so many things had to go wrong, that this eminently logical forensic explanation actually opens up new avenues for conspiracy theory. There are just too many questions. Why wasn't Brandon Lee wearing a bulletproof vest, which was standard for scenes in which actors are being pretend shot? Why did the actor shooting the gun aim directly at Lee instead of offline, as a weapons expert would have advised him to do? And why was there no weapons expert on the set that night? Maybe because some sect of the Chinese mafia orchestrated and paid for such incompetence. Maybe because some supernatural force was pulling the strings. But probably the answer is just as mundane as the explanation for Bruce Lee's death. Probably the answer to all of those questions is money. The Crow was a low-budget film, and every effort was made to cut costs. Along those lines, the cast and crew, who were non-union, had been working insane hours, including a lot of night shoots. Everyone was overworked, overtired, and prone to making mistakes, and probably so concerned with getting their own job done that they weren't exactly likely to spot someone else's fuck-up. The Crow's indiness is important because of what happened next. First, a decision had to be made as to whether or not to finish the movie. Eventually, director Alex Proyas, who had been very close to Brandon Lee, and producer Ed Pressman decided to move forward, with Pressman finding an additional $8 million for rewrites, reshoots, and special effects. When the cast and crew reconvened two months after Lee's death, two doubles were brought in to finish Lee's part. One was Jeff Cadiente, who had been Lee's stand-in during the original shoot. The other was stuntman Chad Stahelski, who had trained at the same martial arts school as Lee, and thus was familiar with how he moved. These two doubles were generally shot from afar, but for some shots, according to cinematographer Darius Wolski, Brandon Lee's face was digitally grafted onto the doubles. This face replacement technology was in its infancy in 1993. This was obviously long before it became relatively commonplace, thanks to its use on films like Gladiator and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. And the original news stories about The Crow's production either omitted or downplayed the fact of its use. Maybe nobody wanted to talk about it. Maybe nobody wanted to think about it. Maybe it seemed morbid or creepy. Maybe it was. And The Crow didn't need more questionable press at this point. Before the film was completed, The Crow's original distributor, Paramount, decided to cut their losses and drop the movie. Paramount was in the process of being acquired by Viacom, and they were worried about taking on an albatross. The two-month delay caused by the reshoot gave the company an out, and they took it. So the film was picked up by Miramax, which, although nobody knew it at the time was about to head into its defining year. Harvey Weinstein's company would give The Crow a 1,500-screen release, the biggest in the history of the distributor to that point, in May 1994. The Crow is thought of today as a cult hit, and certainly it was and is a touchstone of subculty stuff. It's basically a fashion bible for the kind of teenage goths who cosplay at Comic-Con. But it was also a legitimate mainstream hit, and a significant one for its distributor— the Crow topped the box office in its first weekend with over $11 million, making it by far the biggest opening in Miramax history. It was also significantly more than the $9 million brought in five months later during the first weekend of the film generally agreed to be Miramax's first blockbuster, Pulp Fiction. In the decade after Brandon's death and the release of The Crow, the deaths of both Lees and the mysteries surrounding them created a feedback loop enhancing the Lee family cult, and, particularly, the iconography of Bruce. A Bruce Lee memorabilia boom took off in the mid to late 1990s. This fire was sparked first by Lee's return to the cultural conversation in the aftermath of Brandon's death, and then it was stoked by celebrity superfans, like Quentin Tarantino and the Wu-Tang Clan. Forty-five years ago, Bruce Lee couldn't get Hollywood to even treat him like a human being. Today, if some incredibly tasteless entity were to create a Mount Rushmore of celebrities who are underestimated, treated as other or less than when alive, but in death are revered as mythological icons by fans, turning them into incredibly lucrative commodities for anyone willing and able to exploit that fandom, then Bruce Lee would belong right up there, alongside James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, and Elvis Presley. Maybe in another 45 years, Hollywood will accord similarly lofty stature to Asian leading men while they're still alive. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode, like all of our episodes, was written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth, That's Me. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, you must rememberthispodcast.com. Please follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. And if you haven't already, rate and review us on iTunes. As always, you can suggest ideas for future episodes at our wiki. You can find the link in this episode's show notes. Join us for another tale from the secret and/or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night.